Hello, my friend. Uh, this is the part where I pretend that we haven't been speaking for 30 minutes before this. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. How are you? <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I'm I, so good. How about you, Liberty? Hey, long time no speak. Um, no, I, I wanted to talk to you about Constellation, your latest deep dive, because it's a company that's pretty close to my heart. And uh, I've been learning about it for almost a decade now, but to you, it's all pretty recent. So there's tons of stuff I know about it, but I don't even know how I know it, right? After a while, it's like, mm. where have I learned this? Did I read this somewhere? Talk to someone? Was it at the meeting? Or so, but to you, like it's all loaded up in RAM, like you know where you learned about it. So I'm curious, how was it learning about this company? What did you find different about it from others? What did you like most about it? What did you like least? Like, how was the experience of researching it? Yeah, no, I think kind of after, you know, doing the deep dive, uh, my first inference was I, I wish I, I studied this company earlier. Like I know, you know, some people on Twitter talk about this company, almost idolize this company. I didn't know much about Constellation before kind of doing this deep dive, but I know Mark, I knew Mark Leonard is, is kind of a bit of a you know, mythical character and many people, especially the shareholders seem to have a very high opinion on him. So I think, you know, I, I learned more about investing uh, about how to think about, you know, operating and investing and at the same time, much more than I probably expected going in. So one of the things that stuck with me is, you know, hurdle rates are magnetic in nature, right? That's pretty much his quote from one of the letters. So, you know, just to kind of flesh that point, he had this hurdle rates for all his acquisitions that his M&A professionals or, you know, business unit managers would go out and acquire some companies, but they have to make sure that they are maintaining some hurdle rates, right? And I think in Constellation's history, they have raised hurdle rates, I think, once and decreased it twice uh, in like 20 years of its operations. And what they found out that when they decreased the hurdle rates, the IRR for all the opportunities that they explored or pursued also went down with it. So it's not just some marginal acquisitions that you know they're kind of on the fence whether they do whether to pursue it or not, because it's so close to the harder rates they are pursuing. That's what probably they expected, but that's not what happened. What happened was basically everything that they pursued tended to kind of become closer to the harder rates they have beside it. Right? right. So and that kind of made me also think about what sort of hurdle rates I want to think about when I'm, you know, investing in companies? Should I, uh, like, you know, I know, I know this, that that's kind of the debate, I think, among many investors. And I don't have a very black and white answers uh, on this, even after like going through Constellation's letters and Mark Leonard's musings on this. Part of me thinks like if I have a very high hurdle rate, I may miss some of the, you know, usually good companies are, well understood, you know, uh, not, I don't think I, I expect to find 20 companies undiscovered in my life and which will be like, you know, 10 beggars, hundred beggars in my lifetime, right? It's uh, my best guess is basically I'll, I'll buy generally good, fundamentally good businesses, which perhaps are underestimated how good those businesses are, right? So I'm not saying, you know, the inflection point will be from bad to good, rather good to very good right? right so and and because i'm i'm okay with good right i don't i don't want to wait for very good irrs i'm okay with good i'm tempted and i'm usually lured to take a stake in companies or buy companies where irrs are you know pretty much in the reasonable range but i i'm wondering after kind of reading reading that i'm wondering to what extent that being okay with reasonable irr like may have a tendency to kind of, you know, use it, like, you know, work as a gravitational force right. for like most of my portfolios return. It's too early to say, I don't know. I'll have to wait and see and kind of, you know, probably wait for 10, 15 years to go back and see like what happened and what did I do and all that. You know, the, the, the thing that I struggle with investing and I, I know I'm going on, on a tangent and here. Uh, well, it's but, fine, it's uh, fine. I, yeah. I, That's what we do. Things that I, I, <laughs> right. Well, one of the things that I struggle in investing, like, you know, I feel like there's this mismatch in time horizon in the sense that our, in a, in a sense, our pretensions are front-loaded, right? So like, you know, I'm a good analyst, 
I'm a good investor. I don't know that, right? Like there's little evidence of that, right? So these things are kind of front loaded. Like I have to convince you I'm a good analyst. I'm a good investor for you to kind of, you know, let's say invest in my fund or, you know, subscribe to my newsletter, right? Things like that. I know people talk about track records and all that, but like nobody has 20 years of track record on their own and then they go and raise money. Uh, People take chances, right? You know, based on who this person is and who they are. But there's a lot of like, you know, for the lack of better word, pretensions involved in that process. And th- those are kind of front loaded, right? It takes so long in the market yeah. to have a really solid track record that by the time you yeah. have it, you're basically ready to retire, right? right. Most people exactly. are not like Buffett. Most people won't do this for 60 years. You know, most people at some point, like, they reach some number and they're burned out, they're tired, they're retiring right at the moment when they have a long enough track record that most people would say that guy is really good, that woman or that person is really solid, yeah. right? So for the rest yeah, of us, yeah. it's like, well, you know, try to guess based on super limited information. And maybe the whole time they were operating in just that one cycle or that one type of market or like, it's super difficult. Yeah. I, I totally agree with you. Like think about since GFC, global financial crisis, you know, it's been what, like, you know, 12, 13 years. That's a long time. That's a long time for anyone to make a lot of money to like, you know, be regarded as like a great analyst and investor. And maybe all this time they were just, you know, riding on a particular (laughs) cycle without knowing, right? So that's always a possibility. So that's something I struggle because I know when I think about my own investing, my own portfolio, I know the results aren't going to be evident or apparent like in three years, five years, right? It may take a lot more repetitions, a lot more iterations for me to kind of stumble onto my own philosophy. Like I think you were talking about just before recording, like someone you uh, on Twitter, you say you, you saw like, you know, having a plaque of like all the companies that they have bought in their portfolio and they have this in, in the public reading room or like a workspace on their home. I feel like that, that's a great way to kind of feel a sense of ownership. Right. Of the companies yep. that you, you buy. It's tangible. It's, it's much more tangible, right? But yes, like it takes time to kind of really feel that sense of ownership. If you are, if you bought Constellation software like 10 years ago versus someone like me who bought like, I know, basically this month, right? It's not quite the same. Although we, theoretically we are both owners of Constellation software, but the sense of ownership, theoretically we know the answer. Theoretically we both are owners. But I think time is a significant part of that sense of ownership. Like you know, when you own a company, a lot of people take it as a negative and it can be negative. You know, a lot of the things in investing is a bit of a paradox. Like you know, when you are with a company for 10 years, it does give you more sense of ownership, but it also has a tendency to infuse biases and all yeah. that, right? You get so attached, you get all- emotional about it and all those things that some would say as negative. But on the other side, I would say to counterbalance that is like, I think it's Ed, uh, Ed Borgato said that you can't borrow someone else's confidence. And what builds confidence yep. is exactly this time. You have more time to research and learn, but you also have more time to see the company in action and you get to trust them, right? When they say something, do they do it? How do they react to various situations? And over time, you kind of build that confidence in the company. And so if I was to sell a company I've owned for 10 years and I have super high confidence in there, like quality and leadership and everything, and I was to sell that company and replace it with some other company, mm-hmm. it can be equally it can be equal on the other stuff, right? It can be of equal valuation and equal quality. And is that I need more than what I'm selling to compensate for this resetting of, of confidence and of yes. experience with the company. And I think too many people who are constantly like selling and buying and selling and buying, maybe they don't realize that they're missing that because they never get to that point where, oh, I've owned this for like eight years, you know, and I know everything about it. I know everybody who knows everything about it. Some people would get to the point where they're so attached to it and so emotional to it that they would lie to themselves right, to just keep owning it. And they would be the last to admit when something has changed or there's a new problem. Yeah. So, you yeah, can yeah. have that. But if you can, I don't know, work on yourself and be the kind of person who will admit mistakes, right? And try to see them. I think, I think that there's a balance to be found there. The thing about compounding is that almost all of the benefit come at the end of the, the exponential curve, right? And so if you own a super great business for a year, maybe you can get lucky with some valuation multiples, but the real value will be built over much longer. It kind of, you know, is related to what's your investing philosophy and what uh, you want to how you want to kind of, you know, pursue investing. Like in investing, I think there's always this, you know, like I said, paradox. 
what I really want to do as an investor is to be aware of the paradox, not necessarily be able to solve the paradox. Right. Right. So yes, I know when I own something for 10 years, there is a true sense of ownership. I understand the business in a much you know greater depth and uh, breadth than someone who has been researching for like uh, a month. But at the same time, it, it also has a capacity to infuse that sort of you know biases in my process. Now, I just want to be aware of those two things. Not necessarily I'll be able to just you know solve that paradox just by being aware. In many cases, I think like, like you just mentioned that you, ha- you have to be able to admit mistakes when something has materially changed. Unfortunately, I think it's on, on things like that, it's probably a degree. Like, you know, it's not like a group of people who can admit to mistakes when they can see. And there are this other group of people who just can't admit when, like, even if uh, they are shown that they have made a mistake. I think it's probably a degree. We all have a tendency to kind of you know, withstand that mission of mistakes, but it's a degree. Some people are quite adamant and they cannot accept the fact at all that they can make mistakes, especially if it's public. And you know, so again, just be being aware that this is a human condition, not necessarily a personal condition. This yep. is a human condition. When you are wrong, you, you will resist to acknowledge it, right? But the moment you are aware of that temptation on the human condition, you will be far less harsh on yourself. Like you wouldn't bash yourself saying you are you are a bad investor or a bad analyst because you missed this or that. Like that's like you know that's like a human condition. You will miss a few things. Unfortunately, the things that you missed turned out to be pretty big deal for let's say this investment or company. And a lot of the time you'll miss things that won't turn out to be a big deal. And it's probably good for you that you didn't, so you, you missed those things. And you can convince yourself saying, oh, you know what? I knew about probably those kind of, you know, certain risks, but I didn't miss the forest for the trees, right? Yep. So there are different ways. Like that's why I feel like you know, investing, it's, it's a very personal journey for everyone involved. And it's so hard to generalize right and wrong, like correct or incorrect approach. Right. I, I feel like especially if you're an individual investor, probably takes more than 10 years. There's really no control understand. group, right? You can't just rerun the timeline, no. see how you would have done. I, I so agree with you about how it's a question of degree. It's not even about like binary, like you have it or you don't. And in my experience, the way to nudge yourself like to kind of the right side of the distribution is mm-hmm. just with practice. It's like even admitting you're wrong is a skill. Like changing your mind is a skill. It's not like yep. you, you don't just meditate on it, then you can do it when the time is right, right? It's a, you have to constantly practice it, even on small things. It's kind of like a boxer, like you're in the gym and you're practicing so that on the big fight day, you know what to do. And so sometimes mm-hmm. just like someone points something out on, on Twitter, whatever, you're wrong and you say, oh yeah, you're totally right. I was wrong about this. Blah. Just doing these small things, then maybe when there's something really important on the line, you'll have the reflex of even going there. I want to go back to the letters, like it's almost a cliche at this point to say that, oh, constellation letters are, are great, the great letters like up there with like Buffett's and Bezos and everything. But yeah. I'm curious what you think of the letters, reading them, how did they hit you? Or did you have such high expectations because everybody was talking about it that you were kind of like, oh, okay, it's not not that great after all. Or I, I'm just curious, how, how did they hit you? No, I, have, I think I already mentioned, it kind of beat my ex- already elevated expectation going in. The way he kind of thinks about autonomy, the tension between centralization and decentralization, right? You know, I, in my deep dive, I mentioned I read this book, Billion Dollar Lessons, which is a terrific book, especially since we have been going through this decade-long bull market. We, you know, we have been devoid of many lessons that we probably need to learn vicariously at this point. So that book was a great help. And that book had a chapter on like roll-ups and all that, like and how roll-ups pursue both economies of scale and the benefits of centralization by kind of pursuing economies of scale. But they also want the decentralization benefits of like having a manager in that particular, let's say, community who would understand the markets and the uh, business reality of that market much better than the person who is at the headquarter, right? But those two things are kind of at odds with each other, right? So I was kind of curious. I, I had that in my back of my mind, how Constellation does it. Because like, and I, that's a first question that kind of I had even before like studying the letters. Like uh, I understand that I obviously knew that they are serial acquirers, 
but how exactly they are managing like hundreds of these businesses how exactly they are kind of trying to centralize everything like you know with the same operating book and like very rigid structure or are they completely autonomous then how will they be able to kind of get the margin benefits what's the benefit of being part of that constellation structure right so i had those questions and it almost felt like mark and knew the questions in my mind uh, as i kind of went through my went through the letters what probably also made me feel comfortable that i didn't agree with everything that i read right a lot of the times for example and this happens with me when I, when i'm reading buffett's letters like buffett is such a huge stature in my mind and in the investing world i actually find it very difficult like i if you ask me like what's the thing that you disagree with buffett i probably will say only one thing and that is like he mentioned about something like like he would buy i'm butchering this quote but like you know he he mentioned something like now uh, he would own a company that can be run by a sandwich or something like that like because <laughs> the business reality remains what it is and the management can change from time to time but he wants to uh, own a company whose economics is like robust right I don't think you know there are too many businesses in the world that can be run by a sandwich at this point. But that's the pretty much the only thing that, and it's not even like I, I probably even Buffett had. I'm probably not doing uh, justice to what Buffett's underlying point was. I, I don't think he even he thinks. That, yeah, that's you know, the that's often the case, owns. right? People will find right, right. like we all do it, but someone said something in a certain context, tried to make a certain point, and we try to apply yep. that to every possible. point about that topic <laughs> right and so buffett would probably tell us that's like well in the context of what i was talking about like slow changing industries with moats then yes. you don't want a bad but even if someone bad were to go it wouldn't be catastrophic so it's probably something like that he meant but if you look at like today many industries are much uh, they they change yep. much faster right anything in technology you you can't even have mediocre management in most of those right so yeah <laughs> right. yeah i yeah, totally agree with you There were a couple of instances I, I would say I felt I don't agree with what Mark Leonard is saying. His point about buybacks, uh, he mentioned very curious definition. He said buybacks are essentially prey to like prey to the shareholders because the management has inside information, so they can time the market or or something like that, right? So I don't think that's the case. And I mentioned like Constellation is perhaps I think it's probably the only company. that i know of it is quite possible that it may be the only company which didn't experience 30% drawdown in the public after coming to ipo it didn't experience 30% drawdown and it became like you know a more than 100 bagger since its ipo i would be hard pressed to find any other company which experienced uh, similarly on a risk adjusted basis hmm. i think i'm kind of confident that this is perhaps uh, the best stock in the last 15 years ever since his ipo right so it's a pretty special company so it's lucky that he's wrong about at least i think he's wrong about the way he characterizes buyback and if some construction went down by 50% 60% i think he would love to you know prey on some some of these shareholders who are selling mm. and you know he would love to take some of those shares back he would probably warn everybody like a year in advance and you would- because the place that this is coming from is him being so afraid of any conflict of interest of any ethical mm. like gray zone like mm-hmm. in some ways it reminds me of you a bit right you're you're you, when <laughs> oh we're talking gosh. about your newsletter and you're like definitely edit this out i don't want to advertise <laughs> because i i don't want to look pushy like the, the the guy is like so ethical that he's like well if i did a buyback and i knew more about the company than the person i'm buying back from is that ethical right most ceos would never even ask about it. it's like it's the public market people know they're buying and selling like it's, it is what right. it is right but so so the place it's coming from to me is such a strong signal about the way he sees shareholders and the company that to me it's mm-hmm. like okay like even if i lose a couple percent because he doesn't do buybacks when the time is right how much have i gained from having someone so upstanding and so you know of, of this level of ethical thinking right <laughs> so to me it's like okay i'll take the hit there and even on later agms that i went to i think people kept asking about like special dividends and buybacks and it was back when they had more trouble deploying the, the free cash flow mm-hmm. and yep. he was starting to open the door to buybacks like he was he was, oh, yeah, he was talking he, about he like does, he does change 
Yeah. He does change his mind. So in, if you read the letters, he even mentioned like, oh, I don't want to discard the dividends because a lot of shareholders probably bought my, uh, you know, bought the stock because of the dividend. And I think it would be uh, kind of a disservice if I stop paying dividend. And in the recent letter, yep. he kind of, you know, walked it back. So he's not a rigid person. Like he's not like, oh, I, I said this in five years ago, 10 years ago. I, I can't change something. I can't change my mind. I can't, I, I, I can't say something else that would contradict to what I wrote like six years ago, oh. seven years ago. Of course you should. It's quite human and it's quite natural to say something six years, seven years down the line that may contradict what you have said like six, seven years ago, right? Oh, because it's, it's you have old... learned something and all that. It's the old yeah, line about when the facts change, I change my mind, right? He's very patient <laughs> on that. Like he keeps updating. It's like the thing about large acquisitions. He didn't want to lower the order rate. And then he yep. talks about the fervor of the newly converted, right? He changed his mind on that. And now he's going all in on that, writing a new letter to explain we're open for business, like on large deals. So with that stuff, it's like the dividend, right? Back when he wrote that about the dividend, the stock was much, much lower. So the dividend was a much higher yield to owners of the stock. So if he had cut it back then, a bunch of people may have yep. lost like, I don't know, two, 3% yield. But today the dividend is basically nothing, right? It, I, I don't know what the yield is, but they haven't changed the dividend in like 10 years. So the yield is basically nothing now. Yep. So cutting it now, nothing, yeah. would, like, it's not the same impact. So that kind of stuff is the, sure. the stuff you update about. I want to share with you the thing that unlocked the model of the company for me. Once I understood that years ago, that's when I went like, okay, now I get how this works. And let me know if that rings a bell for you, if you had the kind of same realization. Mm-hmm. So the short, the short kind of thesis on Constellation is like, oh, it's a roll-up. And the idea is that they're buying these tiny companies at like one-time sales or four, five, six times EBITDA. And then they're turning yep. around and inside of the public vehicle, the market is going to give them like five or six times sales. 20 times EBITDA. And the, the shorts right, multiple are like- Multiple arbitrage, right? That's exactly. The, and so um, people are yeah. like, it's the exact same assets and you buy them private for four times and you turn around and you sell them for 20 times. It's like that, that's BS, right? So at some point, the market is going to realize the scam and yep. the stock is going to be cut by 75% or something. And so that's what people were saying about Constellation for a long time back when I started looking at it. And my kind of unlock, my realization was that the businesses that they're buying they're basically cash cows, right? They're, they're almost bonds with very high yields. Yep. So you have this tiny company making like a million a year or something, but they have nowhere to reinvest it. So maybe you have this 20% yield, but the money you're getting, you can reinvest it at 2%, right? 1% in the bank. Like you have a bunch of cash sitting on your balance sheet and you can't right. do anything with it. And so that yep. business is not worth a very high multiple. But inside of Constellation, what Constellation grafts onto these businesses is, is a reinvestment vehicle that has a proven track record of getting ROICs in the like 30% range, right? And so suddenly these cash flows from all of these cash cows are being funneled into this machine that reinvests mm-hmm. them at very high returns. It's kind of like the snowball, right? They've also proven over time, not only the ability to reinvest, but to scale the machine too. So that's what the market is paying yep. 20 times a bit or whatever it is for. And so once I understood that, all of a sudden it made all the sense in the world. Now it's less about the model to me. And it's just about like, how can you adapt the model to scale it up? And yep. how are you keeping operations and discipline and like the cost discipline of acquisition and the operations of not damaging these businesses that you want to keep forever, right? Because even if organic growth is 2% or whatever it is, that number hides a lot of things that most people never, they they don't look under the hood, right? They see, oh, it's going 2%, like crappy businesses. It's not where, but it's like, okay, if you disaggregate that number, you have the maintenance and recurring line, which is where most of the value is created inside of the company because it's high margin Mm -hmm. and recurring. And that part is growing like, I don't know, three, four, five, 6% sometimes. And a lot of what's not growing or or shrinking is professional services, hardware sales, a bunch of stuff. Licensing, yeah. A bunch of stuff that's like basically very little value is created there. So just that is one part. The other part is the aggregate number also is that they buy shrinking businesses or runoffs. So if you buy a huge, like the new Allscripts business that they bought, that's kind of a shrinking and Mm -hmm. not super high quality business in some metrics. But if you buy it cheap enough and you can kind of turn it around a bit, stabilize it a bit, you can still make great, great, great IRRs on it, but it's going to make yep. your organic growth, your aggregate organic growth look worse. So people who have a quick glance at the company are like, oh, 2%, but they don't know that some business are growing 5 10% into it. And they, they have other things that are shrinking 10% a year, but they're still creating value from it. So some of these superficial 
views would be, don't buy the shrinking businesses. You're going to have better numbers and the market's going to be happier. But it's like, yeah, but you're creating less value too. So I, I'd rather have Mark buy runoffs and, and like turnarounds and make great money on them than try to optimize for the best looking numbers <laughs> so that, yeah. that, that people look like for 10 minutes and, and the financials feel better about it. So this, these were some of my unlocks for understanding the business. So I think I, I probably read one of your tweets where you kind of framed it that way that the biggest difference between all these companies operating on a standalone basis versus being part of, you know, under the hood, under the umbrella of Constellation Software is whatever money, whatever cash flow they are generating are being deployed by other businesses. So it's a more prudent capital allocation system. Like, for example, even for like something like newsletter. Our, our we have a very high margin in our business, right? So, but we we don't have ways to kind of uh, allocate this capital, right? So the way I kind of allocate my revenue stream or earning stream from MBI deep dives is basically buy businesses, right? We use this money to buy companies from the public market, right? And to the extent those in you know investments are good investments, we'll we'll make MBI deep dives at a much more robust financial position five years, ten years, twenty years down the line, right? But again, these are not undiscovered. These are not kind of, you know, these are not the wretched, like undiscovered gems that you would find, let's say, sometimes in the private market, right? So I don't expect to generate 20% CAGR in my portfolio for the next 20 years, 30 years, right? So, but when it comes to construction software, I think my unlock was like, you know, some, some actually subscribers mentioned, definitely watch some YouTube videos of constant software companies, just know how shitty the softwares are and all that. And yes, that, you know, I have, I have, I've watched some, these are not the kind of softwares I use, right. Or I would like to use, or I would like to buy in the public market. But what I, my unlock was constant software is a system, right? All companies are in some way or the other, but Constitution Software is through and through a capital allocation system. It exists to run that system, right? So when you like, you know, do a typical deep dive, I basically, you know, look at how the company, how, how the, how the, pro, you know, what's the product, how it makes money, why customers use it, uh, and what's a competitive situation, capital intensity, reinvestment runway, all that, right? So when you think in construction terms, some of the questions are not as relevant, right? Because there are just too many of these businesses that are under the construction software system. So the more, most important question for construction is basically the system they have, whether it can be scaled, whether the acquisition runway is large enough for them to kind of you know, keep deploying these cash flows that they are generating. I think one of the things that kind of I mentioned in the very at the very end of my deep dive, and this was one of one of the areas in the letters that kind of convinced me uh, and tempted me to be shareholder of Constellation Software. And he mentioned like you know if Constellation Software were started in 1895 versus 1995, perhaps they would be buying newspapers, right? Mm. So yeah. what really struck me from those few sentences in the letter that he's not. You would see many investors, even even shareholders, they're fascinated by VMS, vertical market software, right? And how why that is such a great industry, why it's kind of overlooked and all that, right? But I don't think. Mark Leonard is quite as fascinated with VMS than perhaps some of the, let's say, investors are. He basically just wants to maintain his system. And the most recent letter is an indication of that, right? That he wants to go beyond VMS. Right. You know, he's not beholden to what has worked in the last 10 years, 20 years. He's aware of the fact that what has worked in the last 10 years, 20 years may not work in the next 10 to 20 years. So the evolution has to be the constant process, not what has worked in the past and all that. The tricky thing is, and I think this, this is true for investing in general and for many companies, if 10 years from now, we have this conversation and it turns out Constellation was a crappy investment for me, let's say, because I bought this this month, right? Maybe it would have worked out fine. Even if it's a crappy decade for them, maybe someone who bought it like in 2010, probably still you know, more than fine investment. But let's say for someone like me who bought it today, like, you know, a few weeks ago, let's say it's a crappy investment 10 years from now. And I think the most likely reason is basically that uh, the fact that they try to 
you know, expand their horizon in terms of going beyond VMS and going these larger acquisitions and all D- didn't work out. Didn't, mm. It turns out they were much better allocator, they're much better operator for these small niche, you know, businesses and not as good. And probably they will face a fe- lot fiercer competition in acquiring those businesses. One thing that's kind of, you know, was very interesting to for me that there are you know, multiples that they paid for these acquisitions in all these years from 2006 to 2021 was hovering around 1x sales, right? Yep. So it did just it showed up. The multiples didn't show up. They were very disciplined, right? So it would be hard. I don't think we should expect that they would maintain that 1x multiple when they'll probably do this one or two large acquisitions probably every year from now given the kind of cash flow they're generating now. So it's possible that, let's say, they're not as good uh, with these acquisitions. And 10 years from now, the detractors of constitutions up to today would say, what were you thinking? That the CEO is basically going out of VMS and beyond VMS and trying to do these larger deals when they made all their money from these small, smaller deals and all that. I think what's perhaps underappreciated among many investors, like, Everything is an evolution, right? You know, it has to evolve. There is no way Constitution is going to do these 5 million acquisition deals in 2030. And there's no way they will be able to deploy all their free cash flow just doing these 5 million deals. So for better or worse, they have to learn how to do this large acquisition deal. So if that doesn't work out, that doesn't work out. But that's the necessary evolution that they will have to go through. Like think about like something like when I think about one of my other holdings, Facebook or Meta, it's the same thing. A lot of shareholders want them to be focused on Instagram or Facebook the way it exists today. Oh, why don't you just make sure Instagram shopping adoption is strong? Include your payments and all that. Make sure that you know you make more money from the current system. The, the thing is that the evolution, like Instagram and Facebook, wasn't what it is today. Like, and it wasn't the same like five years ago or ten years ago that we that we see. It has gone through its own evolution, right? Uh, and because it makes so much money. It's such a, you know, cash machine and printing machine for meta and like shareholders. They want to hold on to it. They want to keep doing what has worked. But we all know, like, especially in technology, things are so fast moving. Like if you miss a significant trend, it can be too late, especially when you already have such a large business. Like for a large business, for any of these businesses, I think like any of the big techs, the risk that I see, and I own like at least I would say four of them. I own don't own Apple directly, but I own so much of Berkshire Hathaway that it's like 5% of my position of Apple, right? So all these big techs, the biggest risk that I see that it's difficult for them to come back if they miss a mega trend, if they miss something very big. Right. If right. AR and VR is such a huge deal, and let's say uh, Facebook is not part of it or Apple is not part of it, that's a huge risk, right? The, and what happened so to Microsoft? Have, Microsoft right, kind of for, missed for, mobile and they were kind of lucky that Satya was good enough and they were able to ride cloud <laughs> and kind of reframe the whole company into a culture and get out of just everything focused on Windows because without that, they would be much diminished, I think. It's a much bigger problem today than it was for Microsoft because the size is just so much bigger. Right. So it's two trillion, three trillion dollar companies, Microsoft and Apple. Right. So if they miss any large transition, especially as big as like, you know, computing platform transition, that's a huge deal. And it's not a question of, oh, Apple is going to be 7% IRR in the next 10, 20 years if they miss this transition. No, Apple is probably going to be a dead. Not like, you know, total debt, but like it's going to be a very crappy investment for investors. And that's not just for, true for Apple. It's also true for Facebook or Microsoft or in a Google or Amazon, right? Uh, if we all become, you know, if you all spend five or six hours a day on AR, VR, and let's say uh, Amazon has completely missed that transition. If we're shopping on, a, you know, virtual reality and not really going to those superstores, Amazon may lose some, you know, uh, potential, some growth and some maybe from existing businesses. So it's it's always a worry for me as, as someone who owns some of these big tech companies. I don't want them to miss any big transition. So at first I was just as skeptical. I'm still skeptical of the, you know, AR, VR bets by Facebook, not because I don't think those are uh, going to be big things, but because I'm not yet convinced that Facebook is going to be the winner of those big bets and the amount of money that we are seeing Facebook is making, I think is an admission 
that uh, they're probably not as well positioned than, let's say, Apple and Google, right? And maybe Microsoft. But I, I think I'm much more comfortable with the fact that it has a better, higher probability of making Facebook well positioned for the future. Mm. Not necessarily, it's, it's a certainty. There is still an element of uncertainty, a lot of you know, high element of uncertainty, how well positioned they will be. But I, I don't want my CEOs or like operators to be focused on whatever that's working right now and whatever that's worked, you know, in the past. Because I think that's probably a recipe for not a good return on recipe for disaster if you just keep doing what what has worked in the past. At least technology is probably not the right industry for that. It's probably a, d- a different podcast, but it's also funny to me how especially financial people tend to look at everything through the lens of money, right? So it's like. Well, Facebook is spending X billion on this, so they've got it, right? They're going to be the ones developing it. But it's like, (laughs) if you read about Apple, the iPhone was made by a few hundred people. It it didn't cost billions and billions. Like, okay, they had to buy some some technology, develop it internally and this and that. But it's it's not like the iPod was an idea, right? They saw that some Japanese company developed some 1.8 inch tiny hard drive. And what can we do with this hard drive? Oh, we could make a music clip. It's about the idea. It's, about, it's not about like spending mm. billions and billions. Like you can spend all the money you want, but if you don't have the right people or the right culture or the right leadership, that, that's going to be tough. On Constellation, going forward, if I had to look at, at the, like the probability distribution and think what's most likely to me, I feel like on the non-VMS stuff, they're going to be very careful about it. Like they're going to seed some stuff mm-hmm. and let it grow if it works. And if it doesn't work, it'll stay small. So I don't feel it's a kind of big bet the company thing. But if you listen to Mark, the kind of businesses that he really admires and loves, he seems to think that Transdime is a better business than Constellation. He loves Nick mm-hmm. Howley. I, I know they've met. And like high code he likes too. And he's studied all these high performance conglomerates. So he's looking at ITW and Roper and all these companies doing kind of different things than, than Constellation is doing. So if he branches out I don't feel he's going to all of a sudden start to sell shoes or something. Like I feel it's going to be still kind of on brand for for Constellation. So I'm not too worried about that. But on the bigger deals, I feel like what we're probably going to see is one or two a year that are kind of like the all scripts deal most of the time. Like divestitures from large companies, they have this segment that's not making their overall numbers look good. So they want to just chuck it somewhere. Get rid of it, yeah. Yeah, I, I feel like Constellation can probably get those because like PE and all the other competitors are not that interested in those. For mm-hmm. like super high quality, large software businesses, I feel like Constellation will have a very hard time. Once in a while, they're going to get a, a TSS or a Topicus, maybe mm-hmm. because they're already in some markets where others are not looking as much or they have relationships on the ground. Like that's one of the things that seems to help them scale up the tiny businesses a lot is once they enter a country, it took them like 10 years to go into Sweden or Australia or Japan or something. And then they do one deal there. And then the next month they have another. And then six months later they have yeah. it. And they talked about this at the AGM. There's a network effect where once you have a business on the ground, they tend to know who else is, is around, right? There are competitors, like right. slightly adjacent industries. And once they're there, they can start to form relationships. And once someone is for sale, they can go directly to them. They don't give that number anymore. They used to. But they used to talk about how many VMS business they tracked because they have this huge mm. database of businesses. It feels like every Constellation employee, like part of their task is like every six months, you call this business. So, hey, how are you guys doing? You're thinking about selling? Like, <laughs> What can I do for you? Yeah. And you keep these relationships alive so that once they decide to sell or I don't know, they, they have a transition, something they think of you, right? When I started tracking Constellation, they were tracking like 20,000 VMS companies. It was like, wow, that's like that's more than you'd expect, right? If you, you've never looked yeah. at it. And the last number I heard was around 60,000. And they talk mm. about their coverage th- still being very low. And then I, I don't remember the percentage, but being in, in a very small number of the big process for, for larger companies and missing a lot of the smaller ones. So it's counterintuitive how many of these companies there are everywhere. And they're not even looking in all markets like South America. And I don't know. It feels like they can probably still keep ramping up the small businesses for a while longer, as we've seen, right? You, you wrote about how they had like 15 and yeah. 2016, and now they have like over 100. It feels like that system of decentralization and keep your capital at the business unit level, and all that, it feels like that's working. The problem with compounding is the numbers become really, really <laughs> big after a while. So I don't know how long yeah. it's going to keep working. But for right. the, the foreseeable future, it feels like that plus a few like, big runoffs and big like hairy companies with problems that together constellation hasn't deployed that much capital since inception 
Some companies, yeah. you, Thomas Bravo just bought Anaplan for like almost 11 billion. I don't think yeah. Constellation has deployed 11 billion since it was founded 25 <laughs> years, 26 years ago. Right. So yeah, I, just I don't know. Thomas we'll Bravo and like, and what's other, uh, Thomas Bravo and what's other uh, name? Oh, Vista. Vista. Yeah, in aggregate, they this these two, you know, PE farm have more than 150 billion dollar AUM. Yeah, right? that's crazy. So, and that's the thing, right? Is the other the other unlock for me for Constellation is like, well, why doesn't PE just come in and like buy everything and increase multiples and it's gonna screw like Constellation's model, right? But from what I've heard, people dealing with these processes is the kind of businesses that Constellation buys. It's as much trouble to buy one of these million-dollar businesses, if not more trouble, mm. because they're not all professionalized and cleaned up. It's more trouble yeah. to buy one of those than for PE to buy a huge like $50 million company. And these companies have huge AUM to deploy, and they're not going to spend all their time and their people and resources on trying to get all these tiny companies that like, even if they get 30% RR, well, on, on $5 million, what is it to them, right? So that's kind of part yeah. of the moat is they're, they're kind of under the radar of what's even interesting to these large companies. So most of the competition seems to come from a, a bigger Toma Bravo business that's doing bolt-ons. And, and that business is going to bolt-on a bunch of smaller ones that may interfere with consolation level companies. Mm. But a lot of the time, the businesses they're buying are like mom and pop shops that are like, there's no second buyer, right? They don't even know how to do a process. They don't have bankers. They don't like consolation has a process to come in and do due diligence and figure out how the business is. But a lot of others would come in and it's like, where are your books? Like it's on a napkin, basically, right? I, I'm exaggeration, but it's not the kind of business that many want to buy. So that, that feels like the expertise at buying these tiny businesses feels part of the mode to me. I think the other benefit that or advantage Constellation has over, let's say, other potential buyers of these tiny VMS businesses is Constellation has the base rates, right? They have been doing mm -hmm. this for uh, 25 years. And, you know, Mark talks about if a new manager is feeling very bullish about a particular about, about the prospect of a particular uh, acquisition that he or she is you know espousing for and if it turns out it's 95th percentile in terms of the revenue growth prospects and and like our profitability and all that it does give everyone a pause that is it really such a good business to be on like the 95th percentile right so the idea of base rates is basically it tends to I think it allows you to kind of have have a moment of reflection right oh right you know so I, I have projected let's say this business to grow from five million revenue to 30 million revenue in like 10 years right and if it plays out that would actually make it top one percentile businesses that Constitution has ever ever acquired. Like Asus has acquired 700 businesses by now. So that's a pretty big statement. Like, you know, it's a good sample am, size. Yeah, I'm going to make I'm going to buy something today that is better than almost everything we bought, like 700 of them, but in our history. That gives a lot of pause to a lot of people and you know that that allows people to have reflect, you know, to reflect upon what they are proposing. Now, if you and I, you know, if we think, oh, you know what, I can do this maths, I can know what's a good business when I take a look at it. So we can kind of, you know, band together and go out there and start buying these VMS businesses. But we don't have that like base. How do we calibrate, right? right? What, what do we base right. that on? Like these, these people, I bet some portfolio managers inside of Constellation and not, not to say like Mark himself and Bernie and the people doing a lot of deals, because in the earlier days, more deals went to HQ and now it's more decentralized. But some of these people have probably more experience buying companies than almost anyone else, right? Few probably, people over yeah. their lifetime will buy 20, 30 companies. So not everybody inside of Constellation has that much experience, but some of them, uh, just, just the, the human capital part of the equation. Also, Mark is so attentive to incentives. I feel like that's another yeah. huge part of it. If you're inside of a big P oh, firm. I, I, I actually I forgot to mention that that was also one of the big unlocks for me. I mean, I had been studying this many of these technology businesses over the last, I would say, 12 to 18 months and stock-based compensation almost seemed like a bread and butter for everyone, right? You know, it's it's everywhere, right? And, you know, Bashar Hathaway doesn't have it, but Constance Software not only doesn't have it, but you know, unlike Berkshire, they also not encourage, they actually, you know, it's a requirement that a significant portion of their bonus has to go to buy shares from the public market, right? Yeah. I am not aware, it's possible, I can be wrong, but I'm not aware of any company that, at least that I have studied so far, 
which have something like that, right? So it's definitely, you know, it, it creates a sense of ownership from, you know, from the employer's perspective as well, right? And so it, it, it's it's just sometimes like I, I, I study this technology business and, and, and Facebook is part of that. Like, and I would, I would read the engineers or employees comments on like, you know, different platform, let's say on blind and like people are posting anonymously, but you can see that they are working on this company and, uh, and that, and it feels very transactional, right? Like, you know, they don't care what Facebook is trying to do or Google is trying to do or, or some other companies trying to do. Some of them, I'm not saying that's majority of uh, these engineers, but some of them look at, you know, their jobs as quite transactional. And I'm not saying that's not right or wrong. It's fine. If, if you are working on a very tiny little project on Facebook, like, yes, you probably don't have the luxury to think that you are creating and shaping the world because, you know, the project or you know, product you are working on has probably, you know, not a huge impact on where the ship is going, right? right. Uh, and Constellation is also like that, right? But I think it allows these employees to have this greater sense of being part of the system. Like, you know, they, there are so many people who are allocating capital. It's not just Mark Leonard. They are also allocating capital, right? And, and also, they know their numbers. Like Mark mentioned that if you bought something, if you acquired a company and it didn't do well, like after a year, there's like a you know, post-acquisition review and it's, it's in your capital base forever. You right. can't take a deduction for impairment and all that, like say, oh, my adjusted ROIC is improving. If you just exclude that one deal, <laughs> right? No, no, no. That's that, It's not what, it, it doesn't work like that, right? So it's if you kind of, you know, uh, mess it up on one particular deal, it's going to be in there for forever. And you will remind yourself that when you adjust for the, this, you know, one-off numbers, then over time you forget it. Really, you know what? That's just one mistake that I made, but I did all the other four or five acquisitions really well and it all turned out okay. I don't think that's really helpful from the systems perspective, right? So everyone is trying to learn from each other, like, you know, from this, you know, acquisition reviews and trying to make sure that the system works better, right? And why do they care so much that system works because they, they own that system. They are part of that system. And in, if you are in construction for five, 10 years, it's perhaps a significant part of your net worth, right? So right. that level of perception of ownership is perhaps very difficult to recreate in many of the Silicon Valley companies, at least the way their composition is structured. Yeah, I feel like some of the other incentives that make it work, like it's one company, but it's 700 or whatever business units, and they try to keep those very independent and decentralized. And so when you work at this specific business unit, the name on the door is not Constellation, it's, it's whatever your unit yeah. is. In there, they're trying very hard to keep the team small and keep it entrepreneurial and remove any like bureaucracy as much as possible. And from the point of view of some engineer working there, okay, maybe if I work for Facebook or Google, maybe my base pay would be higher and stuff compensation. But there's a bunch of other intangibles where like you don't have to deal with a lot of other crap, right? If you're a constellation, like you feel part of a small team, right? Mark talks about the small high performance teams that he wants to keep. And sometimes yeah. when businesses get too big, they split them up instead of doing what everybody else is doing and, oh, we're going to get synergies. And it's like, no, 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 we're, we're going to make more businesses like this synergies. But the, the employee there, their bonuses are based on the ROIC of their unit and the organic yeah. growth of their unit. And so they feel like they're making a difference, right? It's almost like they have this, like they have almost stock in, in their own business unit on top of the constellation as a whole. Once you have this many business that you track and you have base rates for and every, metrics for everything, basically, well, if someone mm -hmm. is doing really great, can go over there, see what they're doing, and then try to upload exactly. that best practices to the rest of the business, right? So TSS now has merged with Topicus, and Topicus has been great at spinning up new businesses organically from the inside, mm -hmm. and has great organic growth compared to Constellation. They've talked about how, well, now we want to learn how Topicus is doing that, right? Even Mark wrote about, like, he's super excited to figure out how they're doing it. Well, if they can leverage that knowledge and like you, you can't change everything overnight, but if they can inject some of that in, in the rest of Constellation, how much is that worth for the, the whole business, right? If they can keep deploying a ton of capital into M&A at high returns, but the organic growth over time trends from 2% to 4%, that's a huge difference in, in, in value oh, yeah. right there. Right? Oh, sure. So that's kind of what he's trying to do also with the new VMS VC fund. He's going to try to spin up a bunch of stuff 
And those that work, there's value in the business itself, but most of the value may be just taking those best practices and, and trying to send them to hundreds of other business units so that they can improve what they're doing. It feels very much like Mark is a systems thinker and the whole thing is yeah. built as a, you could imagine a board on the wall, right? With all the lines and the arrows and okay, there's a flow and the stock there. And, and he's been tweaking the variables and trying to, okay, there's some good stuff over here. How, how can I make it percolate over the rest of the business? And he's thinking about it from that level. It feels like to me anyway, and that's very cool to see. Like few CEOs will be able to explain the business as a system quite the way he does. Yeah, I agree. I agree. When I was talking to a former employee of Harris, like I, I spoke with that, you know, with my acquaintance for a couple of hours and not once that person mentioned Constellation Software. He kept mentioning Harris, Harris, Harris. So the bifurcation from the headquarter to Harris and to maybe other old, you know, operating groups are actually there, right? It's not some, you know, like good stories that Mark Leonard says in his letters, right? So if you talk to these employees, you can sense that, you know, they don't mention constant software like in their conversation unless you basically ask them to mention it. It's, it's right? like a fractal, right? So there's Constellation yep. at the top and each group is basically what Constellation was 10 years ago. So Volaris or Harris mm -hmm. or TSS, well, they're, they're all kind of like Constellation in 2012 or something. And then under that, there's Portfolio Manager managing many businesses unit. That's one thing I forgot to mention is Another way that they, I think, keep employees is they have this inside kind of a ladder where people can grow, right? So you can stay an engineer at your business unit because before you're acquired, there's maybe like 10 people working at your VMS. Mm. You can't go many places, right? You have to leave the business and go elsewhere. But once you're inside Constellation, well, at first, maybe you're like interested in, in doing acquisitions. So you acquire another business like at the VMS level. And if you're good at that, if it turns out well, they may tell you, well, would you like to go one level up? and become a portfolio manager. And now maybe you manage two, three VMSs and then you acquire some other VMSs from there. And at some point, maybe you, you go up all the way to the group level and you're part of the, the capital deployment at the Harris level or Volaris. So they probably all do it a bit differently. That's the thing with being decentralized. It's hard to say like all of Constellation, everybody does it this way. They probably all have their systems. I think that's a good way to retain talent to, to kind of like you're going from this tiny island out at sea, and then you get plugged into this huge archipelago constellation, basically the name that's what it's saying, right? <laughs> so uh, I don't know, that, that's, that's, that's an underappreciated part of it, I think. Yeah, no, so one of the concerns that I have on Association Software is basically the fact that they have compounded, the stock has compounded at like more than 30% over the last 15 years, ever since its IPO, has obviously made a lot of employees a millionaire smart stock. Mark, I think, mentioned... Uh, 100 millionaires in 2015. And he mentioned he expects to have 500 millionaires from you know, Constellation employees by 2025. I think probably they are already 500 at this point, right? Uh, so my concern is, my due diligence says that the base salaries is actually not as lucrative for the employees at Constellation after. And a lot of that is basically compensated or kind of, you know, masked because of the stock price momentum and like, you know, because 50 or 75% of their bonus goes to, you know, buying the stock and the stock is compounded 25, 30%. Nobody complains as things just, you know, compounds at 20, 30%. But if construction compounds at a, I don't know, like high single digit rate or even low double digit rate, which is still like, and as a public market investment is probably pretty decent, right? More than decent, right? But that may stop making up for the lower base salaries that some of the, let's say, more accomplished senior managers are, are receiving as, as base salaries. So for, it's possible that they may face more competition from the outside world to you know, retain some of these employees if the stock kind of stops working. So it's not as pernicious reflexivity as, let's say, a true stock-based compensation, RACUs, and the options are. But there's still some element of it. And like I, one of the acquaintance I, I spoke with, he mentioned there's this kind of a, uh, internal joke in Harris. I don't know about the rest of the operating groups, but at least in Harris, he mentioned like there's this you know, inside joke that uh, we work at Harris, but you know, we get paid like McDonald's, right? Uh, so, uh, <laughs> and it's probably true for the entry-level jobs. And like when you were starting there, I think that it's probably more true about those roles than like middle senior level roles. 
But then again, in entry-level job, you don't have this, you know, bonus compensation, which goes to the stocks and all that. So you probably get those, like I think at a certain threshold, I think it's 75,000 Canadian dollar. So when you go to more senior levels, if you get a lot of bonus and it goes to the stock and it, the stock doesn't do well. I, and, and Mark did mention about some of these, like, you know, potential risks. Like if the stock doesn't perform well, maybe many of these employees would just, you know, go elsewhere. So he mentioned this risk, but he didn't necessarily have to deal with it because the stock just kept going up and without any sort of pause. It remains a risk. It remains a risk today. The stock has gone up despite Mark's best efforts to tamp it down, oh, right? Yeah. He's always writing about, For oh, sure. it's overvalued. Oh, I don't, I don't <laughs> see it going forward doing much better than 10, 12%. He's always like, yeah. in his mind, is everybody's his employees are buying the stock constantly, right? Uh-huh. So he uh-huh. has to keep it at least a fair value. If it gets too overvalued, some people may just sell it and quit or feel like they're getting a bad deal. Or as you say, like if, if the stock starts performing badly for a while, for a long period, that may affect retention. Uh-huh. And even there's another factor I just thought of it right now is since the pandemic, remote work has become much more prevalent. So I think a lot of Constellation employees were not paid as well as like, Google employees or whatever, but they mm. also, most of these VMS businesses are not based in like San Francisco and New York. They, they may be in Markham, Ontario, or like some small town in, in Germany, or the cost of living was much lower. And so there's some kind of, the, the compensation kind of floats with that kind of stuff. But now that right. it's much easier to find a remote job for an engineer and that you can still live in, in, in a small town, but work remotely for Google or Elastic or Cloudflare or whatever, yeah. that may be a, a factor for competition for talent and Constellation may have to start to raise compensation or figure out something for that. The other thing that I actually thought about is that I didn't mention in my deep dive. So when I was, I was speaking with my acquaintance, like, you know, he mentioned his appointment was actually, you know, his joining date was delayed by a week. He didn't know why. He just got an email saying, uh, hey, we're kind of going through some internal changes. Can you just, you know, join like a week later? And he said, obviously, you know, when you are joining somewhere, it's kind of a nervous moment. And when you receive this last moment email, it's like, hey, are they just, you know, uh, eliminating yeah. me? You know? still like me? So, are we still getting <laughs> right, married? Exactly. Cold feet. <laughs> it's not you, it's me, right? So, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So, he was kind of nervous about it. And then, after like, he, he joined like a, a week later. And later, he found out that there was some ransomware incident in the like, you know, operating group he was, he was joining. And it's a risk. You know, there is no denying the fact that many of these VMS businesses like ha- have legacy code base and it can be a real risk since they have like, you know, handful of customers and for them, it's a mission critical software. Like that is generally considered the, you know, bull thesis for VMS businesses, but yeah. it can potentially work against you if like, and if you are attacked by ransomware, your customer cannot do something very important and they need to work it like now, like, or, or like, you know, they cannot wait, afford, like if you're negotiating with these hackers and like, or the ransomware people, like, you know, you can't wait to negotiate for like two weeks. It has yeah. to be done like in a in couple of days because it's mission critical software for the, for your customer. So, yeah, so, you know, th- that, that can be a, you know, it's a real risk even for companies like Facebook and Instagram. Right. Like, you know, even they suffer, you know, Twitter and like, you know, uh, many of these high flying, you know, Silicon Valley tech uh, technology companies have gone through ransomware and all that. So it's a very tangible threat for the businesses that, you know, Constellation buys. And I think it's probably something they need to address. Uh, It's not widely discussed about. And frankly speaking, I, I wouldn't probably even think about it before talking to my, uh, my acquaintance. And then I recently actually saw someone also mention on Twitter that, you know, maybe ransomware could be an issue for construction so, software. That's true. Though. Like even past week, NVIDIA was was Bridge, Okta, which is a security <laughs> company. So yeah, yeah, but Constellation, that's one other place where being decentralized is helping them, right? Because if they get breached, it's not all of Constellation. It's one out of 700 businesses. True. At least. Yeah, yeah. And so it would That's be a like, saving grace for now. What are the odds that all 700 would be hacked at the same time? So I hope that they're really taking it seriously and like doing everything possible to secure themselves. But like if Okta and NVIDIA and Microsoft can get hacked and, and not all acts are the same, some are, are like 
get blown up yeah. in the media, but it's basically not that dangerous. But even the bad publicity sometimes can make your customers feel like less confident mm -hmm. in yourself. So yeah, it's it's for sure a real risk. I would feel worse if all of Constellation systems were one business, right? Because then you <laughs> could take the whole ship down at once. But it's like an armada oh, sure. of small ships, right? So you sink one, well, okay, you've got 699 left. Yeah, yeah. Maybe, you know, maybe some, some hacker group just will just try, try to focus on constitution software, all 700 businesses one by one. <laughs> you go down the <laughs> dead, list. Dead by thousand cuts, right? Dead by thousand cuts. It, it reminds <laughs> me what, what you were saying earlier about like, if you go on YouTube and you look at what the software looks like and it looks like crap yeah. and like, depends like unit by unit, but right. it's kind of true. But my, my reply to that would be, okay, compared to what, right? You have to take the world as it is, not as you imagine it should be. Mm -hmm. So a lot mm -hmm. of this software is replacing like a guy in it with a, a notepad, right? Or yeah. doing it in yeah. Excel or Word, right? So a lot of the time, yeah. like having specialized software for your own tiny niche vertical is a huge improvement. And sure. enterprise software in general is crap, right? The UX is terrible. And even huge one, like you, you won't read like people... Reddit or whatever, like talking about how much they love Jira and how much they love Salesforce and how much they yeah. love Microsoft products. Yeah. So all enterprise software is kind of terrible. Tiny enterprise software is probably going to be like much older and crustier because like there's like five engineers working on it. And maybe yeah. the, the last version was like a green screen on text. And so in some ways, like, it's going to look bad if you look at it and you don't have context. But I think if you, if you keep yeah. it in context, it's like, it is what it is, right? That's what the software is. If you expect it to be designed by Steve Jobs' brother-in-law or something, like, it's not going to happen. So I don't know. Yeah. It, it wouldn't keep me from investing. No, no, no. Same here. Uh, I came to similar conclusion that, you know, and, and again, like, you know, a lot of this risk, like I, I mentioned this in my deep dive, like even if the company they are buying today goes out of business in seven years, like zero revenue in seven years, right? When you talk about terminal value, we think about, yes, every business is zero. But we like to imagine that the zero is coming like 40, 50 years down the line. So it don't matter, right? But I'm saying that a lot of the businesses that Constitution buys, if it goes out of business, like even seven and eight years, you can still make a lot of money if these are very, you know, free cash flow rich businesses. And if you pay low enough multiple for it. And right. if that money that you take out, you can then reinvest at high rates, right? Exactly. That's the magic. Right. Because if you if that, you ended up with a pile of money cycle. and businesses running out and going out of business, well, what do you do with the yeah. pile of money? But yeah. Yeah, like you know, when you put it in those terms, like, hey, do you want to buy a business that's going out of business in seven years? Straight answer is, oh no, no, no. I don't want to buy something that, that's going out of business for seven years. Yeah. But there is a price point. Do you want to buy it for a dollar? <laughs> yeah. It, it depends on the price. <laughs> Right, exactly. So, so yeah, you know that that's perhaps probably a big positive that all these years it's been what twenty five years. Their pricing discipline, their multiple discipline has been pretty much there. Like software wasn't anything that everybody used to talk about in probably late nineties or early two thousands, maybe during the tech bubble. But after that, people kind of lost interest in many cases. But then again, the beginning of like let's say this uh, last decade and then this entire like twenty tens and even today. Software has become this kind of, you know, panacea for everything, right? You know, it's it, everybody recognizes that what a great business model it can be. But they haven't, like, you know, you would expect if I ask you, hey, this is what, you know, software businesses are and how the perception has evolved over the last 20 years. What do you think, how, how you know, how the multiple would change for something like construction software? You would imagine that the multiple would just steadily creep up. That didn't happen, right? That so, That's the thing that makes me think that they didn't just maintain their discipline. They improved it, right? Because if, yeah, they, if be. they were paying one-time sales in like 15 years ago, and in the meantime, interest rates went to zero, everybody discovered software, every like big public software company's multiple went up like four, five, six times, and like yeah. everything is going up, but they're still paying like around one-time sales. That feels like they're getting a better deal than they were before in many ways. And For I don't sure. know the exact multiple, so maybe the multiple would probably went up some, but probably not in direct relations to the rest of the industry. And I understand the market, what it's paying up for, it's like growth. VMS is not the part that's exciting the market that much, but yeah. even taking that into account, VMS is a lot more popular than it was in part because Constellation Software has put it on the map. And then you hear about these others like, mini constellations spinning up in different places. And yeah. I don't know, it feels like it feels like their discipline is only going up despite the magnetic 
hurdles, right? When, when Mark <laughs> was talking about, you, I think he was also talking about how you would expect that if you change the hurdle just on big deals, but not on small deals, that it wouldn't yeah. change anything. Yes. Just changing it on the big deals will affect the people working on small deals. That's kind of counterintuitive. I guess it's the kind of thing you only find out when you try it. <laughs> true, true. So I think this was a good, a good sales pitch for people to pay and read your deep dive. The funny thing is like, <laughs> we've been speaking for, I don't know how long about the company. And, and I feel like we haven't mentioned, I don't know, 80% of what's in the deep dive. So it's like only a yeah. teaser. To you, the listener, don't think that you've gotten the whole thing because <laughs> it's only a teaser. <laughs> no, I think that's actually true. Even if you read the whole deep dive, I feel like, you know, like Constant Software is a $35 billion businesses, right? And many of the companies that I have written about are sort of, you know, in the in a large cap category. And I, 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 I don't think anyone can expect to just read 20, 30 page of these big businesses and be an expert on, on, on those businesses, right? So, and that's why, you know, like, I think the way we kind of, you know, the, the topic that we started uh, our conversation with, it takes time to, to have that sense of comfort to, and, and again, like you can't always wait for that sense of comfort comes to you, right? We all like to pretend that, yes, I'm comfortable with every, every, every stock I own, every company I own. The, the reality is it's a degree. Some companies you are more comfortable with, and there are some that you are less comfortable with. And in many cases, I think the comfort comes from the time you spend with that company, right? And, and, and again, just to reiterate, that can have its own demerits as well. So yeah, it's always with a grain of salt that you kind of you know, contextualize everything. I'm going to leave you on another pitch. It's true that you can't learn everything about a company with 25 pages or something, but I'm going to say that your, your deep dive is the best starting point that I know of to learn about Constellation. I wish I had that when I, I started learning about it because there was nothing back then. It was like, except for the Mark's letters, there, there was nothing at all. Well, there was probably something somewhere, but I, I couldn't find it for a while. The thing you that I also Liberty, like... Yeah. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, sorry, sorry to interrupt you. I was actually a bit nervous while writing the Constitution deep dive in the sense that I was a bit worried whether people would just think, oh, I, I just read the deep dive and I understand it. I don't need to read the letters. I mm. probably mentioned like three times in yeah. my deep dive. I you should that. read the letters. Like you should read the letters, right? Uh, so like, there's no way I think my deep dive is a substitute compared to what you are going to read in the letters. It was so tempting for me to quote Mark Leonard like every once in a while. <laughs> and I was like, oh, well, people are probably not, if they want to read the letter, they can just read the letter. They are here to read the deep dive, right? So I kind of read myself in. But yes, I'm trying to temper your sales pitch probably a little here. <laughs> but I, no. I do think people should, whether they read my deep dive or not, I think if they're really curious, they probably should start or end or middle whatever in, in their investing process. They should read the letters. For sure. And I think we DM'd about this. But another thing I like about your deep dive, see how I, I bring it back to the sales pitch? Uh, <laughs> another thing I liked is that now there's other really great sources for info and consolation. And you cite them and you link them and you credit them. I love people doing that because I see it too often where someone is like, this sounds familiar. And they've basically taken something somewhere else and rewritten it and kind of pretend that they came up with it. And so I like that you're like, Okay, this piece by our friend, the Tent Man, is great. Another mm -hmm. great source yeah. of conversation. Uh, this other For piece sure. about serial acquirers by our friends Ray and Toby, that's also great. You link them, you create it. So if your deep dive is a good starting point, what's great is that if you want to go further, okay, you have the letters, but then you have the links to these other things. So it's kind of like a, a big central hub to start from. So now I won't let you try to temper down my pitch. So I think <laughs> we're going to leave it here. But it was great <laughs> talking to you, my friend. Uh, it's been too long. We should do this again soon. And... Uh, I don't know what else to say. Have a good day, man. Yeah, no, uh, thanks so much for inviting me. I, I enjoyed speaking with you. Didn't feel like a you know recording thing. Like it's something just we just probably speak anyway. That's how it should, right? It, it, imagine if we had recorded every previous conversation, we'd be like on episode 50 or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe we should have. <laughs> uh, well, as soon as, as I have my time machine. All right. Yeah. Great. Thank you so much. And yeah, it would be great to do this uh, once again at some point. Awesome. Talk to you soon. Bye. Bye.